0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
0: Hey, this is Kat, Communications Director of HRN, here with a preview of Episode 2 of Meat and 3. This week, we're talking pork. We'll learn the best way to make a BLT. I don't think I've ever successfully made a BLT just because I eat the bacon
2: before any other part.
0: How pitmasters and restaurateurs are helping put small-scale pig farmers back to work in Alabama.
2: It's all about money. That's the
1: bottom line.
0: What pork has to do with economics? Farmers could be particularly affected by China's threat to levy its own tariffs on pork and soybeans. And
3: with government? Basically all of politics is pork at this point.
0: So tune in on Friday afternoon for your weekly serving of Meat in 3. And make sure you subscribe to be the first to know when new episodes air.
3: I love the way you like blast that out there for me, Dave. It's so great. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm excited to announce that today we have an interview with the um, erudite Raj Patel. Raj is an award-winning writer, activist, and academic. He is a research professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin, and a senior research associate at the Unit for the Humanities at the university currently known as Rhodes University in South Africa. He has degrees from the University of Oxford, the London School of Economics, and Cornell University. He's worked for the World Bank and the World Trade Organization and protested against uh, both of them. Uh, His first book was Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. Uh, And his second, The Value of Nothing, was a New York Times and International bestseller. His latest book, which we're going to be talking about a bit today, was co-written with Jason W. Moore and is called A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. He is currently working on a groundbreaking documentary project about the global food system with the award-winning director, Steve James. Welcome to the show, Raj. Thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Katie.
3: It's it's truly a pleasure. I'm, I'm a long-term admirer of your work, and, um, and I've also wanted to have you on the show forever, so this is a real opportunity for me. And I think for my listeners, too, you guys are going to be running right out to buy these books, I'm promising you. So Raj, I would love to have gushed on more and more about you. In fact, I should announce to the listeners that by Raj's um, instruction, I was uh, required to cut that bio down by about two-thirds. So, I mean, really, I urge people to go to, your, <laughs> to the Raj Patel website and learn more about the many things that he has written and the many uh, projects he's been involved in, because they really are... Um, kind of, kind of incredible and great. Um, so, what we're doing here today actually is first and foremost promoting the Slow Food um, Summit because you are going to be a speaker at the Slow Food Summit. Can you talk a little bit about what that's all about? Um, Well, yeah,
2: I mean, I'm I'm excited to be uh, thinking about what the the future of the food movement might be. Um, And uh, Slow Food Nations is an event that will happen uh, later on this year in Denver, uh, Mm -hmm. where uh, foodies of various stripes will come and uh, uh, convene and and figure out really, uh, uh, ask some tough questions about, well, okay, what does the food movement look like in these times? Uh, What is it that we need to be fighting for? Uh, And Given the the, the the sort of the tenor of current political discourse uh, in the United States, um, it, it it could just be that having a mere White House garden is enough. Uh, but I think that uh, now's a very good time to be taking stock of what it is that we really want to dream—not just to have in the next year or two, but really in the next decade or two. Yeah. Uh, the, the challenges that we'll be facing in the U.S. Uh, in terms of climate change, in terms of um, immigration, in terms of poverty—they're um, not going to get any better and now's a good time for us in the food movement to be having uh, some very deep reflection on how it is that we're going to make uh, sure that everyone has access to food that is good clean and fair um, those are the three sort of pillars of slow food good food meaning uh, food that is delicious uh, and uh, is you know minimally processed and is uh, you know absolutely so sort of wonderful to eat clean meaning that it is uncontaminated by pesticides uh, or you know or, or sort of exotic chemistry uh, and fair <laughs> meaning that uh, everyone from uh, you know, the, from land to uh, the servers to everyone involved in the, the, the making of the food is uh, treated with dignity, respect, and has enough money to li- live on so that everyone can eat. So that's the, the sort of tenor of the discussion we'll be having at Slow Food Nations.
3: Amazing. You did a really good pitch there. That well, was I'm fantastic.
2: My <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs>
3: No, it was really, that was really good. I, you know, I'm practically ready to buy my ticket right now. I should be going to this. (laughs) I should be going to it. I have been in the past, but um, unfortunately I run an Airbnb in the summer, so... I don't go anywhere.
2: <laughs> well, just, as long as you're tra- treating your guests food that's good, clean, and fair, I think you'll be carrying on the. I do industry.
3: actually. I'm very. Um, I don't serve a lot of food, but I. Um, I definitely bake. I make bread and I make cakes and you know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but yes, I'm. I'm totally. I am a cook myself. I was. I worked as a cook for many years. So. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's it's great until your feet give out, <laughs> <laughs> which is essentially, I mean, I had to stop. I just couldn't, the body, cooking is a young person's gig, I'm telling you. Anyway. Um, so let's talk about, you have um, something called Now This, which appears on Facebook and uh, I guess in other platforms. And I loved it. I, um, it's a short film. It's, what is it, about five minutes. And you talk about the seven cheap things that we are running out of. And it's, it's a sort of condensation of your book um, about the history of seven cheap things. And so can you um, talk about what those seven things are and make some of the connections?
2: Sure. I mean, uh, and in fact, um, the, it mercifully, I mean, it feels like five minutes, but it's only two and a half minutes long. Oh, no kidding. Uh, and it is uh, it is packed uh, with information. It's, it's because I speak fast and we pack a lot in. <laughs> uh, and the, the, it's You're basically, doing... uh, we're using um, uh, a very everyday object to try and get to the bottom of how it is that the world around us organizes itself. Um, and the, the object is the chicken nugget. And three million yes. people have seen this this video about how uh, a chicken nugget is actually the symbol of our modern era because it relies on these seven cheap things to be able to, to be made. So uh, very quickly, uh, the number yeah, the number one cheap thing is cheap nature, a relationship between humans and the rest of the planet um, that means that we get to take jungle uh, take chickens from the jungles of, of Asia uh, and genetically engineer them so that we can toss out sort of, 50% of the genetic diversity of modern chickens. Mm-hmm. And what you're left with is that the modern broiler chicken is engineered so that its breasts are so large, it can barely walk. Yeah. Um, and we treat you know, the, nature as this sort of uh, infinite resource and infinite trash can, um, which is why, you know, by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the sea than fish. Mm. Uh, But cheap nature is the first thing. The second is cheap work, because, you know, it takes workers to uh, turn chickens into nuggets. And as you say, uh, workers in the food system, the bodies are disposable. Yeah. And the third thing uh, is cheap care, because who looks after workers' bodies after they've been chewed up by the food system? It's often uh, communities, and usually it's women's work to to take care of the bodies of broken workers. Uh, And uh, one of the ways that that's made easier is the fourth thing, cheap food uh, because nuggets are part of this sort of constellation of cheap food that we, uh, certainly in the U S and around the world, um, get in order to be able to survive having low wages. Uh, mm-hmm. cheap energy is required to keep, to keep us warm and to be able to, you know, speed the production line. Cheap money is required so that, um, you know, the, the these industries have low interest loans. And the last thing is cheap lives. Uh, you know, the people on the chicken production line are predominantly women and people of color. Uh, yes. and that means that, you know, uh, whether it's in food or globally, we're, seeing a rise of forced work and globally, you know, 40 million people are modern day slaves. So those seven cheap things come together in this chicken nugget. And um it's a, it's a, a terrifying object, uh, and one that we, you know, we're already going through fifty billion bones a uh, chickens a year. Yeah. so th- there will be trillions of chicken bones laid in the the fossil record as proof uh, that we that we humans were here.
3: <laughs> yes, <laughs> consuming our feathery friends there at Indeed. a great rate. It's amazing that chicken has become um, in such a short time, the most popular protein around the world. Um, because, you know, back in the day, in the 50s and 60s, we didn't eat chicken every single day like we do now. And I guess that's because of the...
2: and but you're right. And part of that push is uh, the chicken industry itself. Yeah. Um, certainly uh, some of the fears around uh, uh, pork and beef uh, have, have, have you know, also uh, fed into that. Um, the fact that chickens are now engineered to, to turn into, you know, basically it's, an, uh, it's soy with feathers is, is how <laughs> one uh, producer describes it to me. Yeah. You know, it only takes 90 days to be able to, and in some cases much less, oh, uh, to be able yeah. to turn an egg into a very profitable b- bit of chicken. Uh, and so all of those are reasons why it's uh, it's, it's already the most popular meat in, in the U.S. and soon will be the most popular meat in the world.
3: Yes, I think so. I mean, the Indians are ramping up their chicken production enormously, and so right. have the Chinese. <clears throat> Raj, you do know that I wrote a book about the global meat industry, right?
2: I do. <laughs> um,
3: and-, <laughs> and so we'll be quoting extensively from that, won't we, No. <laughs> Because <laughs> it is all about me. I told you that. No. So I want to go back to the slavery thing for just a second because that mm. that was news to me. The people, not only the slavery aspect, which I'm sure is, <clears throat> I know is happening, say, in Brazil. There's sort of, I wouldn't have called it slavery. I would have called it more indentured servitude. Kind of the way we treat our migrant workers here where, or, you know, our uh, undocumented workers where the passport is removed and you're trucked out to some um you know, on un, undisclosed location uh, where you are, you know, working until you can finally sort of pay off whatever debt you have acquired uh, to the chicken producer. What, I mean, what is, what is the scenario for slavery and where are we using? Are we using prisoners in this country or is that something that's happening elsewhere?
2: Okay. Two great questions. So, so the <laughs> first thing is, um, while, you know, Uh, Should we call this slavery in recognition of the horrors uh, that that happened in the U.S. uh, in particular, but Mm -hmm. through the transatlantic slave trade in the U.S. and in Brazil and uh, elsewhere? Um, The international labor organization that's collected this data um, does call it modern-day slavery. And and the Mm -hmm. key criterion is not whether you're indentured or not, but whether there is a a real uh, or perceived threat of violence if you don't do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there is coercion to make you do the work. Uh, and that coercion with the threat of violence is what it is that, that separates um you know just having to work off debt like you know paying off a student loan mm. from being in in a condition that forty million people are mm-hmm. um, and seventy one percent of them are women where uh, they the, the, you know, the, these workers will absolutely face violence um, you know the, the threat of assault or worse uh, as a result of their refusing to do the work so you mm-hmm. know if if the germane thing about slavery is the captivity and the threat of violence, then most people uh, who are in modern-day slavery are, you know, qualify. Yeah. yeah. Now, w- when it comes to um, the prison workers, absolutely prison workers are part of the food system in the United States, mm. um, and they are paid 25 cents an hour for their work in some parts of the chicken industry. But there's a new twist that's also a very old twist on this story, mm. um, and it's when chicken executives... Um, uh, it were uh, recognized that, you know, in order to, to really speed uh, and, and make profitable uh, a chicken factory, it helps to have a night shift. Yes. Unfortunately, workers are paid very little Already, And it's already unpleasant work. And there weren't many takers for the night shift. And so some workers, uh, and this was exposed last year in a, in a brilliant bit of investigative reporting, but some workers uh, come from a, a, a specific place called, uh, it's, it's a Christian um, treatment center for opioid addicts. No and so kidding. what what's happened is that uh, in order to avoid filling the prisons with people who are going through the opioid crisis, um, there are Christian rehabilitation centers that have been set up by chicken executives. And so the, the idea is that people are sent to these centers for a prolonged period of time so that they can pray during the day and work during the night for free on chicken production lines <sighs> and then... Um, you know, and, and are subject to uh, none of the, the standard sort of uh, employment constraints that workers right. elsewhere are. Um, and then through this mixture of prayer and labor, uh, they will be allowed to rejoin society at the end of their term. Wow. So these treatment centers are both very new and very old. I mean, the, the, it was the original uh, technique of the Spanish colonists when they came to the New World to uh-huh. be able to uh, take indigenous people and force them both uh, to learn the word of Christ during, you know, during the evenings and on Sundays, and the rest of the week work, uh, work them to death, literally, yes. um, in order for them to be uh, cheap labor for the colonists. And so the, this, you know, the, the chicken industry is absolutely ground zero for both some really re, you know, re- rebarbative, uh, modern-day practices that are both modern and medieval.
3: Wow, Raj, you, my jaw is still on the floor, man. If I didn't have to Mm -mm. talk, (laughs) it would still be clattering there. Um, (laughs) That is quite a story. And uh, despite my meaty, um, you know, explorations of the industry, that's a wrinkle I had not heard before. And the Christian aspect of it just makes it so perfect for me because I'm, you know, just not a fan. But um, are 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 all the major chicken companies in the United States engaging in this kind of labor, or is it one particular... Company, um, or- I,
2: I'm. I'm not sure of the 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 name of the uh, the, the processing plant, but uh, the, the, there's a link um, up on my website at rajpatel.org. Oh, I'm um, going to be looking to, for that to the that. Uh, to, to the uh, to, to the uh, uh, the bit of journalism, um, and th- there's a great deal of more um, horrific reporting there. Um, so, if, if people are interested, rajpatel.org is the place to look.
3: Absolutely, that's fascinating. We are all going to be looking there. There'll be a quiz, folks. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit uh, more about meat companies. My favorite subject, um, because as uh, many of my listeners know, uh, consolidation in the meat industry, no matter which aspect you know, pork, poultry, or cattle, uh, has been uh, played a big role in sort of dismantling rural communities, among other things, um, as well as breaking down uh, competition and becoming uh, monopolistic. So. Can we can we talk a little bit about how globalization and neoliberalism um, have contributed to the monopolization of agricultural industries in general. And then um, your most recent book, obviously, A History of the World and Cheap Things, um, goes even further than Reagan and Thatcher, my favorite um, villains of the piece, and, <laughs> and, and and actually puts the onus on the one and only René Descartes, um, an 18th century philosopher, right? Is it 18th century? Is that right? Uh,
2: 17th, I believe. 17th. But, 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 uh well, I mean, it's... It yeah, uh, the. the uh, I mean, let, let me. Um, I mean, he, he, he was he was born in 1596. Thank um, you. Okay. So, but but you know, he, he did his work in the in the 1600s, so yeah. 17th century. Yep. Um, but uh, the when it comes to thinking about the the sort of spread of these uh, of the ideas of neoliberalism, it, it's important to understand um, what that means specifically for for, for food workers. Yeah. Um, Neoliberalism is a drive to make uh, work, in particular, cheap. Um, and uh, that, that means busting unions. And when you bust unions, uh, you remove uh, one of the forces that stands against consolidation um, in, in a range of industries. And you you make it cheap for, for certainly for, for businesses to be able to employ and um, and, and fire workers at will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a as a result of uh, you know these these businesses. Being able to consolidate being able to get cheap labor um, they grow and grow and grow and at some point um, there there comes a crisis uh, when interest rates have to go up and uh, then the, uh, the the businesses consolidate and consolidation is the enemy of uh, of, of decent well paid work we know yeah. that when you have the rise of monopolies um you you know you see these, uh, these sort of downward pressure on workers' wages and uh, workers' bargaining power is much lower when you have just one potential boss as opposed to hundreds, right? Um, so that, that that history is uh, both again uh, new and old, and mm. well, one of the the, the ideas that, that that we talk about in the history of the world in Seven Cheap Things are the sort of dynamics of how it is that uh, companies. Uh, exercise their um, their ability to be able to conquer new fields and uh, and then consolidate and control uh, you know, resources and uh, pipelines and frontiers. Um, in that story, uh, Rene Descartes features because he's one of the the sort of uh, principal authors of the idea that. Um, between uh, you know, the, 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 the important civilizational boundary in our world is between humans uh, and nature, between society and nature in particular. Right. Uh, and so th- what, what, what Descartes uh, and his colleagues in the Enlightenment uh, point us towards is, is a sort of understanding where um, humans are sort of exempt from the rest of nature, uh, ex- you know, are different from the rest of the web of life to the extent that we can organize it as we see fit.
3: Yeah, Uh, and and, control. And and that's
2: uh, that's the the, the, the idea that we're pushing here in the um, in this history of the world in seven cheap things is that if you really want to get to the a sort of core idea that shapes our understanding of the world, it's that um, there's a division between nature and society.
3: Yeah. Right, and that division has basically says that man can control nature as, as you just said, as he sees fit, and so the the end result of that is is the exploitation of nature of the seven cheap things, right?
2: That, that's right. I mean, yeah. that
3: really is that's the connection. So, so um, when you would talk about how these these ideas have gone. <laughs> have, have mushroomed into sort of the disaster that they are now. Um, you know, we can, we can identify that um, because, they, because man and nature are separated from themselves, then they, we have now basically separated ourselves from the health of the planet as well as from the well-being of mankind. So what do you see as a way to re- repair that um, broken relationship and restore man to nature?
2: Well, uh, I mean, it's, it's a great question, Katie. I, mean, I, I, I but before I get to, to how it is that we might repair this, I mean, I think it's worth it's worth pointing to to sort of dodgy solutions. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. we we think of um, you know, all, all we need is the right sort of technological fix. Um, we need someone like Elon Musk um, mm-hmm. to pull us out of the yeah. the state we're in and uh, bring us into a new world um, where technology makes things much much better. And uh, in fact we use uh, uh, some of our arguments to to suggest that the historical figure who is most like Elon Musk is Christopher Columbus. Um, Because, uh, I mean, we may think of of Elon Musk as a a daring innovator who's been able to um, persuade bankers uh, to give him a great deal of money, despite not a huge amount of success uh, in in, in his car venture. uh, And Uh, You know his great vision is to be able to turn this money into uh, a wonderful new life through the magic of colonialism. Uh, And in fact, he, you know, uh, Musk is very clear that he wants to colonize Mars, and he uses that language uh, without any shred of embarrassment. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's very similar to the kind of guy Christopher Columbus was. Christopher Columbus uh, persuaded bankers to, you know, to to bankroll his project. Yes. colonize this new world. And, um, you know, he, he's colonizing the new world, not for the benefit of the new world. And you know, when he gets to the new world, uh, one of Christopher Columbus's first laments, he's, uh, when he writes back to his patrons, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella. He writes, oh, yeah, I, I see these wonderful plants and animals, and it causes me great sorrow that I do not know how much they're worth. You know, he, he's, yeah. a very, he's sad because he's looking at the new world and he can't understand. He doesn't see dollar signs immediately.
3: Right, right. you um, can't figure but, out. But how he to also treated his workers
2: very badly. You know, uh, Christopher Columbus was responsible for uh, enslaving, uh, you know, Native Americans and bringing them back to Spain. And for treating his workers very badly on you know on on the uh, on the ships yes uh, and Elon Musk kind of does that too I mean you know, he, he's he already the, there have been some complaints via the National Re- Labor Relations Board for the Tesla factory and if you look inside a Tesla the rare earth metals that are there have been uh, obtained <clears throat> to some extent by uh, the, the the work of um, exploited workers in um, you know in, in modern-day slavery in the Democratic Republic of Congo so mm-hmm. you know we have that layer cake of exploitation that's both very old and very new and I'm not sure that we should trust uh, people like Elon Musk to to be able to get us out of this mess.
3: Well I I have to say it never occurred to me to trust Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) I mean I you know I I'm into because I'm basically a Luddite um, I see ventures like Elon Musk's you know voyage to Mars or even his electric car um, with complete suspicion I you know I don't see it as something that benefits all of mankind in the way that he he seems to think that we should think. Um, but anyway I want to go back to the to the idea of um, of these of this sort of history of exploitation um, that you're describing you know all the way from Columbus up to Elon Musk I I find that just uh, so telling and I'm I'm just kind of curious like where where would we go I mean we don't have a society that actually, votes in its own best interests, um, that uh, seems to have a clear grasp on uh, any sense of the future and what we need to do to leave a planet that's still habitable. I mean, all of those things seem to be eluding um, many of our populace and certainly all of our leaders. Uh, as far as I can tell, with just a few exceptions. So I'm not sure, you know, I don't ever see technology as the fix, but do you see agroecology, this growing movement of agroecology, as the thing that will save the food system, for example? I mean, how do you see digging out from under these, you know, very major layers of societal and civilizational, um, you know, constructs that we've been living with now for centuries?
2: Um, well, I mean, I, I think you're right, Katie, that, that, at, that at some level, uh, a reckoning of where we're heading right now leads us to pessimism. Uh, I mean, certainly, uh, elected leaders are in the thrall of the people who pay for them. And, yeah. uh, and you know, as we know, in the U.S., we do have the best democracy that money can buy. Uh, <laughs> and so that's, that's a reason for, for a, <laughs> a great deal of pessimism. On the other hand... Um, there are. It would be wrong of me to have spent so much time with so many incredible social movements, yeah. um, and to betray the hope that they live every day. And so, yeah. uh, the, the, let me tell you a little bit about the um, the film project that I'm working on yes. with uh, Steve James, the, the the magnificent American director who, who gave us Hoop Dreams. Um, we've been oh, filming yeah. for the past six years in Malawi with uh, an organization called the Soils, Food, and Healthy Communities Project, uh, and. At this uh, you know, through this project, um, we've seen, <coughs> excuse me, uh, amazing transformations that are not just about agroecology. Agroecology, uh, as, uh, I'm sure your listeners are aware, is a, a, a way of farming with the earth and with natural systems. So rather than you know destroying uh, unwanted pests using chemistry and then having to you know, fill in for the, the, the wanted pests that you've just annihilated. Um, you figure out ways of balancing um, the, the sort of cycles of pests uh, with beneficial insects and with uh, different kinds of crops that you sacrifice for, for, you know, for, 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 to, to maintain a healthy insect population mm. while still having the food that you want to be able to eat. But uh, it's, you know, all of that is for naught if you don't have a, a vibrant social system underneath it and around it. Without uh, a sort of transformation of the food system, Uh, agroecology is just another technology. So you you need social change. And what does that social change look like? Well, in, in Malawi, what it looks like is gender equality. It means mm-hmm. men uh, doing the cooking and looking after the kids and recognizing our patriarchy. Uh, and that's not a, an easy thing for, for men to do. I, I know from hard experience that that's something I'll be working on for the rest of my life. But that's a good thing, right? I mean, you know, no, one wants any, no one wants men to be more sexist and more patriarchal. <laughs> you know, everyone wants us to be less of that and to work so that uh, you know, the next generation doesn't have any of that. Um, it's it's a, a lifetime struggle but they're working on it in Malawi. And I think that that's a great source of hope because they're figuring out in that process not just issues around radical gender equality, but also how to fight climate change and how to have a sovereign local economy and how to have better health care and how to have a decent sort of banking system even. Uh, And that seems to me a tremendously important thing to be doing. And then you may say, well, all right, fine. That's great in Malawi. What about us in America? Well, in the end, uh, our friends from Malawi said, well, you know, we're working on all of this, but we hear that Americans don't care about climate change. Can we come to America and talk to people who are skeptical about climate change, whether it's farmers in the heartland or you know the, the White House or wherever wherever it is that we need to go? We want to go and persuade Americans, um, and we've we've managed to film some of that. And uh, if we can finish raising the funds, we'll have that out in, in the in the theaters next uh, next January.
3: Oh, how fantastic! <clears throat> Excuse me, Raj. Let's take a quick break and uh, do a sponsor drop, and then we'll come back. I want to talk more about this. Um, sort of US versus the rest of the world.
2: <laughs> Brilliant.
1: To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com.
3: This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. On the line with me today is Raj Patel, the author, academic, and activist. I like that AAA rating you got there, man. <laughs> um <laughs> So we were just talking about your project in um in Malawi and it it made me, you know, think. I mean, when I hear about projects like that and when I see, you know, the way um developing countries have rejected a lot of the sort of World Bank um, funded technology for, you know, using genetically modified seeds or, you know, the yellow, what, what was it, the golden rice that was supposed to be like the lifesaver for, and, you know, some, so many of these crops have not really worked out the way they were supposed to. And I feel like these um, developing countries are going to be the leaders, because Americans um, just don't want to know what is actually happening I mean i I feel like there's kind of a deliberate effort uh to I don't know whether it's because our education system is failing or whether it's the fault of the media but Americans so often as I said before vote in against their own best interests and that the same is so true of the farming community in so many ways and I think that that's you know this is where I feel like we really need to figure out how to, change those hearts and minds to get to that society and say, you know, hey, this technology that you've been working with for the last 40, 50 years uh, that is so chemical dependent is not the way forward. It's having too much damage. And it's really fascinating to me how hard it is to turn that boat. What do you think would help the most um, in terms of having, I, I mean, I think car- farmers. Sorry to go on and on like this. I apologize. Oh, a, um,
2: you're making very valid point.
3: I think that a lot of farmers, I'd say probably most of them at this point, recognize that climate change is real and that it's not going to go away. Mm. So, um, but I don't see an embrace, the kind of wholehearted embrace of new technologies that I would hope would be really percolating through the system at this point. So, where do you think that that disconnect is coming for? for the farming community in general? Um,
2: between um, uh, well, uh, first, I mean, uh, I, I think you're right that there are um, people around the world in the global south who are uh, fed up with uh, the, the kind of economic uh, prescriptions that we are making their governments take. Yeah. But it's not clear to me that the governments are necessarily doing right by their citizens. I mean, I, I think it's perfectly possible for the Malawian government to sell out their poorest um, citizens just as it's possible for the U.S. government to, to be doing that. And, and both uh, governments are doing a great job of, of not tending to the needs of the poorer citizens or you know just regular average working citizens, uh, but in general uh, catering to the needs of the richest. Yes. So I, I think the, the Malawi story is actually much more hopeful and applicable to the U.S. because um, while the government goes about its business um, and is you know, very much trying to join the neoliberal club, um, some citizens are saying, look, we've had enough. And mm. that is something that we, we definitely got a sense of when we were in the U.S. Uh, but in the farming community, we met a lot of people who are skeptical, not about climate change, but about, um, in particular, the the, the, the the Democrat response to climate change, which was very mealy-mouthed at best. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if... if joining the Paris Treaty uh, is as good as it gets in terms of climate change. And you can understand why certain people are skeptical about it, because it, whether you're on the left or the right, um, it's, it's not enough. And it's all also just too onerous. Uh, and there are much more. Um, and in fact, I, I, I want to quote uh, Jim Goodman of the Family Farm Defenders here. Um, Jim is a, a hero of mine. And he points out that actually uh, you know, in the last election, The Bernie supporters and the Trump supporters had a lot in common uh, because they understood that, uh, you know, that actually uh, elites weren't looking out for them. And the, the, there's, uh, I mean, really, what, what it came down to was, uh, do you choose someone who's going to be, uh, you know, looking out for the elites in one way, or, or who promises not to look out for the elites, but does it anyway? <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, the, uh, I think that that the, the, the kind of bottom-up organizing uh, that uh, that we need for, for this kind of transformation is happening. Um, it's just not happening from our mainstream political parties. And, you know, yeah. that, that's fair enough. So we, we, we shouldn't expect our mainstream political parties to be doing the hard, Work of imagining a future. Um, that's not what political parties are for. Uh, I, I think you know, anyone who believes that uh, salvation is going to come from either the Democratic or Republican Party is sorely mistaken. That's mm. not what parties do. Uh, and it, you know, in general, when you look at the history of civilization, um, it's about you know. And when you look at the sort of big changes, it comes from uh, from organizing, not from from the sort of. Temporary and transient things called political parties. So I am actually optimistic with the kinds of organising that come from family farm defenders, for example, or yeah. you know uh, the National Family Farm Coalition. Um, there are folk who are embracing um, really deeper visions of how it is that, that uh, you know, we, we need to respond to climate change. Uh, and some uh, some of the footage we got in our film between Malawian activists and. Uh, American activists and uh, just American farmers who are skeptical about democratic approaches to climate change. I think were very, very revealing.
3: Huh. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know how to part. I don't know how to absorb that, actually. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, like, I mean, do, do you agree that, that uh, let, let's start with, with, with the last point of, of agreement where the, the, the Bernie and the, the, the Trump supporters had a lot in yes. common? Does that sound like it's uh, a path that you, you could find some optimism down
3: um yes, yes, and no i mean no mm-hmm. because because Trump was so palpably a con man uh from the get go that yep. um that uh, you know i i i i I was just blown away by the number of of people who were hoodwinked and then who were also roped into the whole sort of uh, you know ethnic. Um, racial profiling, you know, the the whole identity politics thing. I mean, all of that, it just, you know, the dog whistling for every worst aspect of humanity um, being Mm -hmm. brought to the fore. And I think that's playing out in our society right now. I mean, with all these uh, arrests of, of, you know, people of color as they, you know, enter their place Mm -hmm. of living or, you know, like that was right in my neighborhood in New York. Just so you know, like that guy who had worked yeah. at the Obama administration, who was moving into his apartment on 106th Street. I live on 107th Street. You know, like that's that's yeah. my home t- my home turf. Like it was unimaginable to me that something like that could happen. I've lived in that neighborhood for 40 years. Like, just not anyway. I I digress. But. I'm I'm going to go on just because I want to talk a little bit about revolution because what you're Mm -hmm. sort of proposing here is that there is a little bit of a grassroots kind of revolution. I I don't know I I, I have so many thoughts Raj. I'm just like Mm -hmm. (laughs) freaking out here. (laughs) Sorry. Um, But I, I also wanted to address something that you said a minute ago about political parties not being in the business of sort of dreaming of a future. And I I mean, I don't know what their purpose is, if that's not what it is like they're You know, the whole point is to have like a vision that you work towards and that's what you sell the American people when it comes time to go to the voting booth. You know, it's like, is your vision of America to go forward in this direction, neoliberalism or globalism, or is it to go in this direction, which is protectionism and isolationism? I mean, like, those are the two futures that were presented to us, essentially, right? And I think that's what political parties are supposed to do. I don't think that they're not supposed to do that.
2: I mean well uh, I mean uh, w- w- one of the things that we uh, w- uh, in in this history of the world in seven cheap things well one of the things that we we did was sort of a look at the origins of uh, modern liberal democracy um, and you know, we, we point out that, uh, in general, the the, the modern liberal. I think you know, this isn't liberal in in terms of uh, Democrat and Republican liberal, but just liberal in in terms of uh, you know the modern capitalist subject liberal. Okay. Um, and and the modern sort of liberal human was basically a white man, uh, and that's important to, to bear in mind. That, that yeah. uh, democracy has has rarely. Uh, I mean, its it, it, its original kind of vision was not uh, to be for everyone. It was for a certain property-owning class, and then expanded to, uh, you know, to, to uh, other working-class men when that was uh, politically expedient, and mm-hmm. then uh, sometimes to women, and then sometimes to people of color. Right. Um, but the, you know, the, the, this process has been a begrudging one where the, the underlying fundamental sort of goals uh, and terms on which participation is allowed um, is never about uh, you know, the transformation of society so much as the general inclusion of uh, the rest of the, the, the planet more or less in uh, an, an adventure set up for um, rich white dudes with slaves. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> yeah, you right. know, th- that's, that's important to bear in mind because... If you keep harking, I mean, if you if, if if people keep harking back, for example, to a constitution written by those people, yeah. uh, then uh, we we end up not very far from the the orbit of that original vision, and right. that's what's um, you know I mean I, I think important to remember just about the democratic political process is that the the last stage of democracy is voting. That's the that's the most boring bit of democracy. The rest of democracy is people taking charge of their lives and of the you know of how it is that the economy is organised, how resources are shared, how uh, everyone contributes or doesn't to to working, uh, you know who looks after the kids, who looks after the elders. Those kinds of questions are, are things that every society has at some level wrestled with, um, and in so far as our capitalist society. Uh, manages to dodge most of these questions and, you know, throw the, the work of care onto the shoulders of women, uh, to throw the, the work of, uh, you know, of, of sort of labor either onto the work of, you know, onto the shoulders of uh, American workers or when they become too expensive, onto the shoulders of other workers or undocumented workers. Mm-hmm. That That's an indictment of what the democratic process is here. Uh, and so that's why I think, you know, political parties are not the, the sort of visioners of change. Mm-hmm. People are the visioners of change, and we must tell the, the Parties, what to do rather than the other way around.
3: Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. So, what do you so I because it's hard for me to imagine I'm so trained to think about democracy in the way that you have just told me I should not be thinking, and you're right. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, I'm 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 struggling to find a vision elsewhere. Like, where else in the world do we have sort of uh, more? I mean, as I put in the in in the um, outline, you know, I interviewed Mm -hmm. Eric, uh, your friend Eric Holt Jimenez, about his book A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism, which I thought was fantastic. And Mm -hmm. he is essentially arguing for for revolution. And he, you know, made many of the points I think that you've just made. And I just I I but I never really got the sense of what. What should we be striving for in terms of a vision that is inclusive, and that provides for everyone? Because none of the ones that I mean, communism didn't really work, did it? That's right. Um, socialism seems to work pretty well, but that's always in a smaller country. With um, I don't know, it seems to work well for the for the Scandinavians, and, and not really so well for other people, I, I guess. <laughs>
2: But again, you know, I mean, the the, the U.S. does have um, uh, a democratic socialist history. I mean, uh, the, yeah. the, um, the, the, the bumper sticker, of course, is that uh, you know the, the last time America had a, a democratic socialist president, it worked so well that they had to imp- impose term limits in order that he didn't um, uh, win again. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the the, the the sort of history of American um, uh, of uh, of the United States even though, you know, people have gone out of their way to to, uh, suppress it, um, is a a very radical history. This is a very radical country. I mean, the whole idea of America is a very radical idea. Um, And uh, I I think that that, that's something worth remembering, particularly now when when it seems like, you know, times are dark, um, that actually this is a country that does have, um, you know, um, certainly an ignoble history that, 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 that uh, you know, has a reckoning uh, in terms of uh, genocide um, and in terms of you know colonization when it comes to first nations, but it 's also a country that has had a history of um, engaging with ideas around socialism and anarchism. I mean, if, if you want to know how oh, yeah. women got the vote in the United States, it was because of organizing in socialist and anarchist clubs in uh, across the United States. Absolutely. You know, if you want to look at how we got the Glass-Steagall Act, it was because Americans demanded the nationalization of all banks, and Congress sold out the American people with a compromise that, um, you know, sort of served well enough until the Clinton administration dismantled it. Mm-hmm. So you know, this, is, this is a country that has understood uh, the possibilities of organizing and controlling government and being the government um, in a way that is very different from the kinds of politics we think of now. I mean, I was lucky enough to have a conversation with um, Jim Hightower really uh, the, the, the day before yesterday, uh, and he, uh, you know, he, he, he put it very well that, that you know, the goal is not for us to elect the government we want; it's for us to become the government, and that's a both again a very old and a very new dream. Uh, for America to, to to be having, and I think, insofar as we're looking for hope, we can find it in the the huge number of people who are right now ready to become the government. I mean, you know, in, in a sense, you know, he, he, I was talking to him about living here in Texas in a red state, and he goes, he, he reminded me, well, we're, we're not a red state, we're a non-voting state, uh, mm-hmm. and. Uh, what we need to do is is remind ourselves that, uh, yes, there is a a, a long history of American racism and bigotry, but there's also a great tradition uh, of American hope and transformation. And the more that we can recruit people to that, um, the more that we can remind America that uh, there is uh, a both a history to atone for, but a history to hope for as well.
3: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful that's a wonderful conclusion. Actually, maybe we should wrap this up. I was just gonna. I was thinking as you were talking, um, you know, about all of the young people who are now engaged because of the horrendous school shootings, and that how yeah. many of those kids are becoming politically active, and that that really is the hope um, that we will see them pursue programs that will benefit everyone. Because the thing that I come back to again and again is that, you know, at least 30% of the people in this country routinely vote against their own best interests. They don't want universal health care. They don't want unions for whatever reason. They think that they don't want these things or that they're bad and they really want to follow that capitalist dream, like all the way into the grave. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's really going to take a, a completely new uh, thought process, which I hope the kids will bring to the table because I mean, us old people have really failed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't include you, but I'm old, <laughs> I'm old and I have failed, even though I've been quite political all of my life. Um, one thing I want to talk about just before we go is the, mm-hmm. the farm bill was, um, rejected by the house. What, what, what was, what was that about?
2: Well, what do you I mean, think was, happened the, there? i mean it, 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 it was largely um, uh, it, it appears uh, a rebellion around immigration yeah um, and that's uh again I mean you know, when we're it, uh, looking at uh, histories of, of race in america uh, those those ideas are alive and well and uh, i'm I, 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 you know I I, I I wouldn't venture to say that, that you failed I don't think I, I mean I think I think that we're always we're fighting a fight that is never guaranteed. Um, you know, we, we live in a time of politics without guarantees. Uh, yeah. to, to use the the, the words of uh, the, the the great British philosopher, um, uh, Stuart Hall. Uh, but it, it's okay to, to live in a time without guarantees. If we if we were guaranteed uh, success and victory all the time, um, we wouldn't be uh, creatures of free will. Right. Uh, you know, we, we've you know the the possibility of losing is always around the corner. Um, but that's why we have to keep fighting, and that's why even though it seems like the times are dark right now, there's no guarantee that they're going to be better, but there's no guarantee that, they, that, that uh, our efforts won't succeed. So, you know, we'll, we'll never win always, and it would right. be foolish to imagine that we would. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, we can take courage as you are from, um, you know, the resurgence of, of young people taking, uh, you know, getting very political and moving that politics. Hopefully, not just uh, to, to a, a world where you know there are no more school shootings, uh, but where we can live uh, in, in a very different kind of relationship to one another and to the planet.
3: Yes. Uh, and that's something to hope for. It is something to hope for. Well, well, on that note, I guess we have to say goodbye. But Raj, I hope you will come back. Um, this has been one of my favorite conversations in 10 years of doing this show. So well, thank, thank you, you so much, thank Katie. I'm very, very much. Well,
2: looking forward to our next chat. Uh, to
3: to <laughs> Excellent. Another. We'll do it soon. Um, and thanks to my sponsor, Wisconsin Cheese. And thanks, of course, to my beloved engineer, Dave Tattashore. Got it right, Dave. <laughs> thanks for listening, folks. I'll see you next week. Take care now.